Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. If you're looking for the Airlines Confidential podcast, you've found us. I'm Ben Baldanza, and thanks for the download. That's a ditto for me. This is Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. We're going to cover some news and then get to an excellent conversation with Dave Koenig, the well-regarded airline reporter for the Associated Press, to talk about the JetBlue spirit deal. He's been covering that saga for the past five months and has a bird's eye view. So of course, the spirit shareholders rejected the frontier offer. And then the subsequent announcement of the deal with JetBlue was the big industry story in the US last week. Ben is still locked in the cabinet on this topic. So he and I won't be talking about that right now. But we'll save this for the discussion with Dave in just a bit. So in other news, we had Southwest and Frontier earnings results this past week. JetBlue is reporting after we record this week's show. So, Ben, give us the lowdown on your take. Well, in the Southwest and Frontier earnings, we saw similar messages to what we've seen in earlier airline reports, but also some things unique to each airline. So in Southwest's case, they actually had record quarterly earnings on record high revenues, which... If anybody still thinks of Southwest as a low-fare airline, well, the 1980s are calling. That's all I'll say. And so, But if you're Bob Jordan, I'm sure you're very happy that the revenues are strong and covering some real cost pressures that he talked about in the earnings that are driven by high fuel and just lack of productivity without as much utilization of the fleet. Another thing of real interest in Southwest earnings was Bob Jordan credited the fuel hedge in protecting their fuel expenses. Southwest may be the biggest airline in the world still using this strategy to the level they are using it. Most airlines no longer hedge. They've recognized that with bookings only about 90 days out, you can control through price and schedule your risk of higher fuel. So Southwest sort of relying on this strategy and crediting it for the record earnings is great right now. You never know whether that's going to come back to bite them at some point. Although I don't know anyone predicting fuel prices getting low right now. So maybe they're going to end up being brilliant again. On the frontier side, they also made money for the quarter on a 43% increase in revenue over 
2019. Now they're a much bigger airline, so that's not a same store sale kind of number. But interestingly, they reported a $75 per passenger ancillary revenue collection. I'm sure that sets a worldwide record if, with that number. I'm not sure of all the detail of where that comes from, but that's a big piece of that 43% increase in revenue. They also talked about cost pressures, but unlike Southwest, really sort of focused on increasing their stage length or length that they fly, also bringing on more and more of the higher gauge A321s, that those things would help mitigate some of the cost increases. So while Southwest, like the rest of the industry, talked about cost headwinds and ways to deal with it, Frontier talked about it really as a transitionary thing. Either way, I think both these earnings suggest very strong leisure demand in the summer, operational challenges because of people issues. And like I've said a couple times on this show, Chris, one of the real issues is going to be what happens in the fall when the leisure travelers aren't there in the volumes they are today, but business doesn't come back quite as strong either. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but that was a point that the Southwest team specifically made with regard to their outlook for the rest of the year was like, you know, this leisure demand and, and the insensitivity to the high fears of leisure isn't going to continue. And that's like kind of an unknown into the fall is kind of like, what's going to be the mix with regard to leisure and business and will business rebound? Like we keep thinking it will, Will leisure drop off a bit because of high fares? Will high fares stick? Will fares have to come down to attract leisure? So there was a lot of that uh, kind of sidebar discussion. The other thing that Southwest made some news on last week was announcing that their uh, credits for refunds or missed flights or the like, but their their airfare credits were never going to expire. What did you think about that? I was really surprised at that. I'm sure that they had a good discussion with their accountants on that. Those of you who remember our discussion with Dave Dixon a few months back, I bet he'd have a thought on that too. As a customer thing, obviously, if I get a flight credit because my flight is canceled or something, to know that it never expires is a really good thing as opposed to I have to use it in a year or I have to book it within 90 days for up to a year or whatever the rules of the rest of the industry are. Um, it's a very consumer friendly thing to do. I'm not sure it's going to ripple through the industry, but it'll put pressure certainly on the bigger carriers to think about something like that. There is a period of time not that long ago where Southwest was unique in not charging 
change fees. United changed all that when they announced we're not going to have change fees either. And then American and Delta sort of matched up with that and Southwest lost that advantage. It'll be interesting whether the industry let Southwest keep this advantage now, a new one they've created. It's a very customer friendly thing. I had credits on Southwest that did expire. I wish I could be grandfathered, but I know I won't be. <laughs> and so um, the real thing to me is whether or not this is going to become an industry practice. And I'm doubtful of that right now. What do you think, Chris? Is everyone going to match this? I don't know. Um, you know, like you said, the rest of the U.S. industry has found ways to ignore things that they don't want to take up that Southwest does. So whether it be the free check bags or uh, an easy way to exchange your tickets and rebook, you know, the, the carriers address these things when they want to and ignore them when they want to. So this will be one of those topics where I, I think we'll have to see. I, I think a major carrier will react more to the other major carrier than to Southwest. Does that make sense? It'll be a good one to watch for sure. And then, uh, Ben, the profit parties are catching on in Europe too. Ryanair and British Airways owner IAG both reported quarterly profits this past week. Was there, however, after talk of a profitable quarter, I thought, and record-breaking passenger counts, reported its worst ever quarterly loss. Your thoughts? Wings is a really well-run airline. It's also part of the Bill Frankie empire that includes Frontier, Valaris, and others. Um, and they have very low cost, but my guess is they weren't able to get the revenue bump that the rest of the industry has seen. And yet, due to inflationary costs and lower than expected utilization, their revenues couldn't cover their higher costs like we saw at Frontier and Southwest and the rest of the industry. And that's what caused that loss. If I were betting on European carriers, though, I'd still bet on Wiz long before I'd bet on British Airways. Mm, that's a that's quite a challenge to put out there. So the Wiz Air stuff did kind of surprise me because I was expecting obviously a better result than that. Um, but I think it also underscores the impact of airport operations across the continent. Uh, it's surprising and a welcome surprise that IAG was able to report a profit, especially with what's going on at Heathrow right now. But um, obviously, we want carriers to make money, not lose money uh, at this critical time. So we'll keep watching that space. You know, Chris, this would be a good stat for us to get maybe for a future show. But I'm not sure how much British Airways contributes to IAG as a total right now. I'm sure it's still huge, but it may be smaller than I've been thinking because I agree with you. If you look at just the pressures British Airways has had with most of the transatlantic requiring testing through this quarter they just reported and that being very important for British Airways all the problems at Heathrow and things like that I bet British Airways uniquely their earnings 
probably looked more like some of the rest of the industry. And I'm not even sure if British Airways as an entity made money. But IAG is a lot of things. So the fact that as a group they made money, it's possible that they covered those challenges at British Airways. I think you're probably right. Well, Seabury Securities is closely following these quarterly profit results. That's for sure. Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company and is a leading specialty finance and investment banking firm. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And Airlines Confidential is now sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. Ben, some pretty ugly numbers from FlightAware as far as airport delays. No surprise that the top 10 list is heavy on European airports right now, as we've been talking and trashing those airports for the past several weeks. For the six-week period from late May through mid-July, only one U.S. airport made the top 10 list. That was Orlando. I can see that, and every time I'm at that airport, I get the hives. No disrespect for the Orlando airport team that runs a great airport, but it's just always crowded and, and the like. But the worst airport for delays was right under our nose, and it surprised me, frankly, Toronto Pearson. I was surprised at Toronto as well, Chris. Toronto now has two crowns it can claim, the worst operator and the highest cost. (laughs) (laughs) Toronto is a wonderful city, but Toronto Pearson is such an expensive airport to operate at. It surprised me because Canada has been more restrictive on flights and the flying hasn't returned with the same robustness there as it has in the U.S. So all I can think is that Toronto specifically, and maybe that part of Canada, is having an even bigger problem with people um, that they couldn't operate where they probably weren't at sort of peak volumes given where Canada was. Orlando, on the other hand, makes sense to me. In a world where people still aren't flying as much as they used to, but leisure travel is high. Orlando is such an in-demand destination that I'm sure Orlando is probably seeing as much, if not more volume than they've seen even in 2019 in the summer. So to try to deal with all that volume in an environment where it's hard to get employees, it's hard to hire at all levels, you know, ramp workers, airport workers, um, wheelchair pushers, all kinds of things. It doesn't surprise me that with that kind of volume, Orlando showed up on the top 10. 
Well, next up, our conversation with Dave Koenig from the Associated Press. But first, a reminder that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for a more sustainable aviation future. Learn more at pwgtf.com. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're pleased to welcome to this week's show Dave Koenig, the well-regarded airline reporter for the Associated Press. Dave, you know, it was, wasn't that long ago that there were probably dozens of airline beat reporters around the country at major papers and the like, but you are a, a vanishing breed, but we're glad you're with us and we're glad you're carefully watching the industry. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me, Chris. It's a, an honor to be uh, on the podcast. And you're right. Uh, we used to have three not too long ago, uh, uh, three airline reporters. And now I'm uh, I'm a business reporter for the AP, but uh, you know my main job is covering the airline industry, and I'm the only one. So, tell us a bit about uh, your history with AP, but also covering the business. Yeah, I, I joined AP more than 20 years ago as a general business reporter and covered pretty much anything related to business in Texas. So that meant uh, you know, the airlines, it meant Dell Computer, it meant uh, you know J.C. Penney, and even, uh, you know, the poultry business, uh, because we had a couple of big uh, chicken processing companies. So it was, it was uh, way too much to handle. So uh, in, in more recent years, I've been able to focus more on the airline industry, which is uh, a relief to me and in, in fun to cover. Well, as our loyal listeners know, Ben Baldanza, my co-host, who's not in this conversation right now, uh, hasn't been able to talk about the Spirit Frontier JetBlue consolidation story for the past five months. You've had a bird's eye view of this, and so we thought it would be great for our listeners to, for you and I to talk about covering this story and your thoughts throughout and whatever other knowledge you can share. So let's let's talk about that. If, yeah. Uh, going back to this original announcement back in February, I guess, by Frontier, no pun intended, but did this come out of the blue? What was the chatter, if any, on the run-up of the announcement? Uh, and based on your initial reporting, how did you think this was going to proceed? Yeah, I, I, it did uh, come out of the blue. Uh, I think Frontier and Spirit did a good job of keeping it under wraps. I don't recall that it leaked at all, which is kind of unusual with these big deals. So, yeah, it, it was surprising. Uh, hadn't been rumored. Maybe, maybe we all got complacent because, you know, there'd been a flurry of airline mergers and then we hadn't seen one since 2016. And the assumption was none of the big guys, the big four, would be able from an antitrust point of view to do any more mergers. So we maybe we all let our guard down. But it turned out that in their filings with the SEC, Spirit and Frontier had been talking for quite a long time about a deal. So uh, 
I guess, I guess that just goes to show corporate executives, they're always thinking about deals. So once it was announced, did you think this was just a kind of a garden variety merger or acquisition? Where did you think this was going to go? Well, you know, we expected that there'd be kind of a roadshow campaign sort of thing where Ted Christie and uh, he's the CEO of Spirit and, and Barry Biffle, the CEO at Frontier, would make their case. I, I thought the hardest part of which that was going to be their claim that they were going to save consumers of of $1 billion a year just by joining together, you know, and adding more routes and more frequencies and putting more pressure on the big guys. And, and it turned out that that issue sort of got lost once we, once we had a bidding war. So then when JetBlue got involved again, was that out of the blue Were there some rumors, something was coming? What were you hearing uh, before the JetBlue announcement? Yeah, there had been some speculation, but I didn't take any of it as informed, you know, uh, and again, it did not leak until the very end. It was during the trading day, one day in early April, when uh, the New York Times reported that JetBlue was going to be making this offer. And and later that day, uh, Spirit confirmed it, that they'd received this unsolicited offer and, and their board was going to look at it. So now, you know, now we had a bidding war. It was really on, and uh, the JetBlue offer was clearly uh, it, it, it was better. Uh, you know, it was thirty-three bucks a share. I think was the original offer, and it was it was clean. It was all cash, and uh, so uh, that that changed the story one hundred and eighty degrees. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Dave. But first, if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. As this proceeded, Dave, when did you get the sense that the momentum was moving away from Frontier? Well, I, I think we could kind of see that uh, JetBlue got an early victory when Spirit said that its advisors had said the JetBlue offer might turn out to be better. They didn't. The JetBlue board had unanimously supported the deal with Frontier that was announced back in February, but but they said, "Hey, our advisors are telling us this could be a better deal." So that really put pressure, I think, on on Spirit's board to talk to JetBlue and not just blow them off to protect the deal that they had cut with Frontier. And I think you really started to wonder if JetBlue had the uh, the momentum when Spirit postponed the shareholder vote the first time. This was back in early June. The shareholders were going to vote on the Frontier merger. And um, I think the vote was scheduled for June 10th, but a couple of days before that, um, Spirit announced a delay. And, and you really knew JetBlue had the momentum when the second vote got postponed. That was supposed to be June 30th. And um, right before that postponement, I remember I had an interview, a joint interview with Barry Biffle and Ted Christie, and they told me how confident they were of winning. So I, I don't know if they didn't read the room or... Uh, they were they were spinning, but but that turned out not to not to be the case. Well, I imagine you've had the benefit of dozens, if not hundreds, of conversations these past five months about this transaction. Um, and so, one of the benefits of talking to you is you know you're knowledgeable, and then two, you get to share some of that insight with our listeners, who I think are going to be fascinated by this. But 
what were one or two of the critical factors that you were picking up from spirit investors as you know beyond just the value and the $33 a share but were there any other kind of underlying issues what was the chatter as the spirit investors started to move away from the frontier deal first i have to say that the spirit investors were saying nothing on the record we reached out to all of them and i'm sure all my counterparts at other news organizations did the same and they wouldn't say how they were going to vote. Um, they kept everything under wraps. They, they might say, well, we'll listen to what the, uh, the advisory firms uh, that, that advise shareholders, what they're going to say, how they size it up. And so they would only talk uh, off the record. Uh, and so I can't name names. But And, and even then, they wouldn't say, well, we're going to vote yay or nay. But they... I, I definitely got the sense from a couple of them that they weren't maybe totally buying the idea that uh, that the regulators would kill any attempt by JetBlue to buy the to buy Spirit. Uh, that was a key argument that Spirit and Frontier were making, and I'm not sure that ever quite convinced uh, all the big shareholders. They were, you know, they were trying to figure that out on their own and not just take Spirit's word for it. To that point, do you think that that was like almost like a boogeyman kind of argument that created some mistrust with the shareholders and Spirit and Frontier with regard to, oh, well, that other offer isn't good because it won't get approved and trying to ignore the the value of the JetBlue deal? Yeah, I, I don't know that it created mistrust. I think they probably just figured, well, this is the argument they have to make. It's the best argument they've got left because clearly in terms of current value, the JetBlue offer was was worth more. You know, you could do the math. Uh, JetBlue was, was clean. It was all cash. And so you, it was a, you, know, you multiplied a couple numbers and you came up with the value. And it was at that point around $3.7 And the, the other deal was a little more complicated because it was some cash, but it was mostly frontier stock. And it originally was worth about $2.9 billion, but as the Frontier shares lost value, it fell. And so they had to, they would lose on, on just a strict dollar-to-dollar -dollar comparison. So they had to make the argument that, uh, that there was some other reason to support it. So I, I don't know that the share, no, no shareholder told me that, oh boy, we can't trust those guys. I think they probably just viewed it as, well, they're making the best case they can. Yeah, no, that's fair. Is your sense that the Frontier team was outmaneuvered or were they stubborn or were they prudent in saying we're not going to do this deal at any cost? I'm not asking you to be you know, judgmental as much as you know, your job is to cover the story and report the news and what was your conclusion about that part of the outcome? I'm not sure they were outmaneuvered. I think they just they were just kind of prudent and not not doing the deal at any cost. They were not willing to do the deal at any cost, and uh, they kind of in the end said that as much that they had done their diligence. Um, I, I think it's also possible that they looked at the situation the way that a lot of analysts did. And that is, that is um, while you know it would have been great for Frontier to buy Spirit, it, it would have been an acquisition. It was nearly equal, so we often described it as a merger, but it, it really was Frontier buying Spirit. They did, 
control 51.5% of the company. And that was going to be great because they'd be the biggest ultra low cost carrier out there, right? So, so that would obviously be good. But it also wasn't going to be bad for Frontier if JetBlue buys Spirit because now Frontier is the biggest player left in, in the, uh, in the space, uh, it's, it's like um, Jamie Baker, the J.P. Morgan analyst, he, he's, he likes colorful phrases. And he wrote the other day that if JetBlue buys Spirit Frontier, will inherit the keys to the low-cost kingdom, <laughs> is how he put it. Well, so, no, that's, that's, that's accurate. I mean, they're going to have a yeah. big runway, right? With, with, Absolutely. With solidified low-cost. Correct. So, so I think Frontier didn't want to overpay for Spirit, and they knew that JetBlue buying Spirit was going to help them too. There was, uh, you know, a fair amount of chatter last week uh, during the uh, Ted Christie appearance on CNBC with his kind of tap dancing. Again, no criticism. That's what CEOs have to do when their organization changes changes direction. But trying to kind of take back some of his earlier comments about the JetBlue offer and the value of or lack thereof of, of, of that deal. Do you think there's going to be any lingering effects from all that? I, I don't think so. I think, you, like you say, it's kind of what they have to do. It, it was not a good look. It looked like a hostage video. And, you know, uh, um, Ted Christie really could not explain how uh, how suddenly the regulators were going to be okay with JetBlue buying Spirit, you know, after he was saying for months that that, that would never happen. And and it was it was... It was a painful, uh, you know, painful interview. I, I suspect for folks at Spirit to watch, and and I give Phil LeBeau credit. You know, CNBC usually treats corporate executives with kid gloves, but but Phil, their reporter, he he tried several times to ask, hey, the, this exact question that you're asking, Chris, and and the best that uh, that Ted could come up with was, well, uh, Jet JetBlue has lots of ideas about getting this done with the regulators, so so. But I, I don't think there'll be any lasting damage. So where do you expect this deal to go from here? Well, of course, now we got to watch the regulatory process. And it may take a while. The last big merger we had, if you skip back over Alaska buying uh, Virgin America, the last really big one we had uh, when America, American and U.S. Airways got together, DOJ didn't weigh in until several months after the deal was announced. So... You know, I, I don't think we're going to hear anything anytime soon from DOJ, probably late this year, maybe maybe even early next year before before we do. So the next thing that we're all watching is uh, there's a trial scheduled for September with the Justice Department. They are suing JetBlue and American over uh, the Northeast Alliance, which is a partnership that they have um, in uh, some uh, in working together with fares and schedules and whatnot in, in some Northeast uh, markets. And so we'll be watching that closely because the outcome could say a lot about how much leverage uh, DOJ has to bring concessions out of JetBlue in this case. Well, we're all going to be watching this for, I think, uh, months, not weeks. And I could see this, like you said, even taken into the new year of 2023 before this is resolved. But um Maybe we'll have you back again to talk about it later. But this has been very helpful to, I'm sure, our listeners who have been waiting for us to to talk more about this deal. Now, Ben, as we talked about, has been on the sidelines. He's not participated in this conversation, but he might have a question about something else on the industry. So I'm going to invite him 
on to uh, ask about something else. Well, thank you. And thank you, David, for your great insight on all of this. My question, since we have you here, and obviously we brought you in to talk about, you know, JetBlue Spirit Frontier, but since we have you here and you've covered the industry for so long, I would like to ask your opinion on how the industry gets out of the funk it's in with its operational mess ups, whether it's not having enough people to work or scheduling too many flights. Are customers going to trust this industry again? Uh, I, I think airlines are always uh, uh, an industry that people love to hate, and that is not going to change. I think to their credit, I think you have to say that this summer has probably not been as bad as we thought it would be at the start. Got off to such a rocky start with Memorial Day and Juneteenth, uh, Father's Day weekend. Both of those were disasters, and we, we shouldn't let our guard down. We still got a couple more weeks of heavy summer travel. And if there's bad weather, things can go south really fast. But, uh, I mean, we had a, a day this week where there were some thunderstorms and suddenly we had more than a thousand flights canceled. So, uh, you know, it, it, that could happen uh, here in, in early August. But, yeah, it, it, we're beginning to see the end of the summer. Maybe the worst is behind us. And I think the airlines and Transportation Secretary are both going to claim that they helped, uh, you know, help prevent the summer from being worse, and the memories will probably fade if, if if there are no more huge disasters. Europe has been a lot worse than the United States, so if the U.S. can avoid the kind of scenes you're seeing at Heathrow and at Schiphol, um, I, I think people will will. Uh, We'll kind of forget about this eventually. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to love the airlines. They'll they'll still grouse about them, but you know life will go on. As long as they get a good low fare, right? That's, that's right. As long as they get a good low fare and you don't lose their bag. What are the other issues you're watching? Uh, kind of the top of your list right now for, about covering the industry. Yeah, that that that's a key. Uh, you know, they are trying to hire their way out of uh, this uh, operational challenge that they've faced. And that means that their costs are going up. The airlines are paying more for fuel. They've made money. They had a good second quarter. I think they're going to have a good third quarter, but everybody wants to know what's going to happen after Labor Day, because normally that's when you see business travelers replacing the vacationers who, who now are, their kids are back in school, so they're not traveling. No, you know, business travel is still down. The airlines are telling me and telling other reporters that Small businesses are flying, but corporate travel is still off somewhere around 25, 30%. And I'm not sure why, you know, when that comes back or if it ever fully comes back to pre-pandemic levels, but that we're going to be watching that because that makes a big difference to revenue at, at all these airlines. Well, Dave, you've been generous with your time. We appreciate it very much. Our listeners are going to enjoy this. And uh, we also like the fact you listen to Airlines Confidential. So thanks for being a listener. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, Ben. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata. 
the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Thanks again to Dave Koenig for joining us. Now we'll take a couple of our listener questions. Remember, you can email us your questions via our email box at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. And Ben, before we take a question, we have a comment from Rick in Seattle, and it gives us a well-deserved comeuppance after we mangled the Alaska Airlines CEO's name. He writes, guys, his name is Ben Minicucci, pronounced Minicucci. Love you guys, but it's driving us crazy here in the Pacific Northwest when you mispronounce it. Now, I've spent my entire life having my last name mispronounced, and I should know better, and I apologize. But Ben, as the in-house Italian, you should know better. I absolutely should have known better. And not only do I owe Ben an apology for not saying Minicucci, I owe him a big bowl of fettuccine Alfredo, too. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, first up is a question from our loyal listener, Joe, in Tampa. He's looking for any perspective on the rumors that American is going to bring Envoy and Piedmont regional air carriers into the main line versus being wholly owned subsidiaries. But then I'm going to tag on to the, his question with one from Chris from Charlotte. And Chris writes, Hi, Chris and Ben. I'm a longtime listener and first-time commenter. You took a question from Nicholas a few weeks back where he asked, would he be better staying at his regional airline until leaving for a legacy or going to an ultra-low-cost carrier, which demonstrates the futility and demise of the current feed-slash-regional model that the major carriers have created over the past two decades. Stepping back, we see that no matter what choice he makes, he is still leaving the regional airlines. And I faced the same decision 20 years ago. You have also mentioned multiple times how the U.S. is the only country in the world with such high time entry requirements for pilots, given that the only way to keep the shortage at bay is for the regionals to become wholly owned and offer mainline seniority numbers and other benefits to those pilots. Of course, the cost would increase, However, with the right incentive and seat locks, this would prevent the mass exodus the regionals are currently experiencing. Such a hybrid scenario could bridge the gap. What do you think? And keep up the great job. Well, Chris and Joe, thank you for these comments. And I do like this idea, Chris. The regional airlines are so important for air transportation in the U.S., but they almost always uniquely benefit one of the big three airlines, American, United, and Delta, because most of what they do, not all of what they do, but most of what they do is feed hubs. And they allow hubs like Chicago, Dallas, Denver, Atlanta, and others to provide service to smaller cities. Sometimes those are subsidized by the Essential Air Service Program, but most of the time they're not. And the regional airlines, in partnership with the big airline, make it all work. And so you can live in a smaller city, have a connection to a hub, and by extension, a connection to the world. So that relationship is really important. The industry has gone back and forth between owning the regionals and letting them own themselves and having sort of a contract with them. But this idea, given the pilot situation, that someone could come work for a regional and at that point start 
earning their seniority credit at a bigger airline is a very interesting way to add stability to the regional airline pilot force. Now, the big airlines are going to have to agree to that. The big airlines pilot unions are going to have to agree to that as well. Because, for example, if you get hired as a first officer at Delta, do you want to be lower seniority that someone who today is flying for the regional, but when they step up to Delta will be ahead of you? I think it's a real interesting thing. I would like to know what the pilot unions think about this, but as a strategy to stabilize pilot hiring at the regionals, I think it's a very good idea. Now, anything that raises costs like this would means that the big airlines are going to have to pay more to the regionals for the service, which means that some of the most marginal small cities that these regionals serve are going to be at risk from this. At some point, serving a certain city, while it may make sense today, may not make sense when the cost goes much higher because the revenue opportunity isn't that much more. So it wouldn't surprise me, going back to Joe's question, that American is looking at bringing Envoy and Piedmont back into the main line, meaning sort of owning them and allowing what Chris talked about. But the industry clearly needs to be more creative about pilots in general and the regionals where many pilots start their careers. You don't want them trained there, hired there, and then just leaving to go off to an airline that's not even affiliated because that's their best option. So I think this is a real interesting idea, one to watch, but it's not without a lot of complication either. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, Ben, and I agree with Chris's question or observation that he sent into us. And like we've been talking about, at the end of the day, there's not a turnkey solution to the problem of the pilot shortage. And it's going to involve lots of parties sitting down and compromising and being creative and hammering out new solutions. So this is definitely on the table or it should be on the table. And then one more listener question. We're going to tee this up as a finer wine, too, because that's what the writer kind of asks us. It's from Sally in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she writes... I'm a flight attendant for another airline, but wanted to know what you thought about this American Airlines tarmac incident in Charlotte last week. Is this a fine or a wine? And then she sent a link to a news story that probably some of you have seen that involved a flight from Charlotte to JFK, reports of sobbing passengers on the six-hour delay, which clearly violates the U.S. DOT tarmac rule that prohibits an airline from keeping passengers stuck on an aircraft for more than three hours for a domestic flight or for four hours for an international flight. But here's the rub. The flight was, like I said, from Charlotte to JFK. They were on an aircraft with an inadequate air conditioning, and then they were transferred to another aircraft when airplane number one was taken out of service. However, airplane number two had no air conditioning as it sat on the runway, or that's what was reported. So I guess technically AA followed the law. Three hours on airplane one, three hours on airplane two, but the total delay was six hours, but divided by two. Ben, fine or wine? 
You know, I'm going to say this is fine. If I don't think Americans should be charged $27,000 per passenger, which that crazy regulation requires, but to have people on two different planes, both without air conditioning, that's what the APU does. Isn't that right? And so they have two, I mean, these guys need to call Pratt and Whitney, I think. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just crazy that you'd hold customers on two different planes, all without air conditioning in one of the hottest summers we've had ever. And I'm sure it was very hot in Charlotte. So I don't blame anyone for sobbing or complaining. I don't think they are owed $27,000, but I think Americans should certainly do something for them. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, take them back to the gate, notwithstanding the three hour rule. I mean, especially with the second aircraft, um, people don't have any tolerance right now for this. And I don't know if they should. So anyway, um, I, I agree with you that it's not a fine in the context of a DOT fine, but it's a it's a moral fine and certainly a wine by the passengers. So That's right, Chris. Well, let's go into the shout outs. And my shout out, maybe this is a tad premature, but I don't think so. It goes to LaGuardia Airport. That airport, which was called a third world airport by President Donald Trump, then President Biden said, am I in a third world country when he was at LaGuardia? Right, that airport has taken so much guff from people. But after six years, 17 million hours of work, 40,000 tons of steel, that airport is almost ready for prime time. And most of it today just looks great. The Delta Terminal C, which alone was a $4 billion project that Delta paid for, is really spectacular. And when you're flying to one of the best cities in the world, New York, and you go to LaGuardia, you should get an airport experience that's commensurate with that. And LaGuardia is almost there. That's a good one. Having uh, flown in and out of the uh, new airport several times, I agree with you there. I'm going to give my shout out to the Emirates management team for their masterful statement that they issued a couple of weeks ago about the situation at London Heathrow. If you Google Emirates Heathrow statement, it'll come up. It's on the Emirates media site. Um, there, there were a couple of statements, but this one's dated July 14th. It, it really was um, a lesson in how to put something on a platter and shove it right back to your, in this case, an opponent, um, you know, calling into question the mismanagement of the situation at London Heathrow, them not being ready for the surge in travel. You know, people forget Heathrow is a for-profit airport. So they have shareholders. The Emirates management team called on the shareholders of, of the airport authority to kind of closely scrutinize the behavior of the airport management when this, there was plenty of time to plan ahead. So take a look at this if you're interested and see how a statement should be written because it is really quite astounding and very, very uh, impactful. Good shout out, Chris. Thanks to everyone. Thanks again to Dave for a really super discussion and hope to see you all next week. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.